Welcome to the Beyond Barriers podcast. If you're an ambitious woman who wants to advance in leadership, then this podcast is for you. This podcast is co-hosted by Nikki Barua, digital innovator, serial entrepreneur, author, and speaker, and Monica Marquez, senior corporate leader, ex-Googler, and diversity expert. From inspiring stories to cutting-edge strategies, you'll learn how to develop the skill set, mindset, and tool set to get future-ready fast and accelerate your success. Hi, I'm Monica Marquez, your host for today's episode, Hustle. The Urban Dictionary defines the word hustle as to strive headstrong and voraciously towards a goal. Or as Anthony Iannarino clarified in his article, The Real Meaning of the Word Hustle, is that you work hard every single day. It means you do the things other people won't do, and you do them with a sense of joy and purpose because you love it. Today, you'll meet Christina Antello, a real-life example of the word hustle, who lives by Thomas Edison's motto, Everything Comes to Her, Who Hustles While She Waits. Christina Antello is a founding principal and CEO at Faro Strategies. She has spent more than a decade representing multinational corporations with her trademark hustle at Washington's best-known government relations firms. From Wall Street to K Street, Christina has set herself apart as a trusted advisor, skilled advocate, and effective negotiator who isn't afraid of long, hard work. Featured in Washingtonian Magazine in Success Stories of Washingtonians of Latino and Hispanic Descent, and identified as a top lawyer, power player, and most influential 40 and under leader in other regional publications, Christina provides insider advice on how public policy is created and communicated. In this episode, Christina shares her life's journey and how she learned to hustle. Visit IamBeyondBarriers.com where you'll find show notes and links referenced in this episode, including the best way to get in touch with Christina. Welcome, Christina. Thank you so much for joining us on the Beyond Barriers podcast. We are thrilled to have you on and I am beyond thrilled given just your powerhouse Latina kind of energy that you bring. And um, you are known to be fierce and, you know, and breaking all kinds of barriers. And so, Let's just dive right in and tell us a little bit about who Christina is and your journey and what you've learned along the way. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm actually really excited to, to be here and kind of even knowing the, the background of your organization and what you're trying to accomplish, I think is, is amazing. Uh, a little bit about me. I actually grew up in, in Cedar Hill, Texas, a little, little town outside of Dallas. Uh, I never kind of imagined getting outside of Texas. Texas seems so big when, when, when you live there. Um, but I, I actually got uh, approached by an organization called A Better Chance that was designed to help give um, students of color uh, a quote unquote better chance by getting you a better secondary education, you would get into a better college, you would get a better job and, and have a better life. And uh, they, they approached me when I was in junior high after a talent search and, and offered to send my application to, to boarding schools uh, across the country wow. and uh, try to get me a, a better secondary education. I ended up getting a full scholarship to, to a little school in North Andover, Massachusetts called the Brook School. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it really is a very rigorous school, but it, it, it was kind of at 15 years old, this monumental thing that happened to me to kind 
kind of open my eyes and see a bigger world kind of outside of Dallas, Texas, mm-hmm. um, you know, doing things like learning how to surf, right? There's no ocean in, in Dallas, Texas. <laughs> going to the New Hampshire beach to learn how to surf, well, it just makes you realize like, wait, there's so much more out there mm-hmm. to have experience and to know that I didn't even kind of, weren't even on my radar. Um, and, and it was there that I kind of developed my love of politics without even really knowing it. I took a government 101 class, it was basically civics. Uh-huh. And I didn't even know the difference at that point about, you know, Republicans and Democrats and kind of learning in this class what that was made me want to go to Georgetown um, and learn more about that. And then, and I thought that, you know, I would be, I would go to Capitol Hill. I would help write laws. I would change the world. And then I did an internship there and it was, I mean, quite honestly, very boring. Um, And then a veteran (laughs) calls again and they're like, we've got this partnership program with some businesses on wall street. Do you want to come? And I'm like, no, I'm idealistic. I'm going to change the world. You can't tempt me with your wall streetness. And they're like, well, it's 10 grand for the summer. I'm like, well, sign me up. I'm good. That's fine. (laughs) Right. Can't hurt. It's just the summer. And then I got there and Wall Street was amazing and it was it was sexy and it was fast and it was like all these things, a, a, another whole world that I had never seen and learning all about finance and debt and equity and how do like e- economies work and how does the market work and what does mm-hmm. that mean and learning all of these things. And so after graduation, I actually went to work for Goldman Sachs and really kind of left myself open to learn all about this. I didn't take any finance classes when I was at Georgetown. Mm-hmm. And so really it was a brand new education for me until, and I'm Cuban, I saw the Elian Gonzalez story and that was a, a big deal, but it was a Cuban boy found floating in the waters that the, the United States government was going to return back to Cuba. And I thought to myself like, well, I'm not supposed to be looking up the price of Target for billionaire Bobby, which is what I was doing in that exact moment when, when Janet Reno sent the FBI in to go get him. I'm supposed to be working on policy and back in DC. And I, I literally signed up for the, the, the LSAT right, right after that and, and ended up going back to, to DC to go to law school. And now I've been back in DC for, for well over a decade, about 15 years. And I've, you know, worked at law firms. I've been, but I decided, you know, like I, I didn't want to be a lawyer. I wanted to be in politics. I wanted to be in policy. And, and I found this thing called lobbying. And it was this way that was actually, wait, I get to do policy and make money? You mean I don't have to pick one or the other? And it was kind of the birth of like all things that I loved in one one profession. And I just decided that I I loved it. And I really wanted to specialize in that. And so I've, I've been a lobbyist ever since. Wow, what a fantastic story. And so much of it resonates with me because I grew up in a small town in West Texas. And, you know, you don't realize how sheltered or how limited your frame of reference is until you do go to somewhere that's, you know, much bigger. And when I packed up after I got my master's and moved to New York City, I mean, it was like, oh my God, I had no idea what I, you know, what I was missing and no no idea of what the opportunities were out there. So share a little bit about, and you touched on it about, you know, gaining clarity on your career path and your purpose, because like you said, originally you thought you wanted to do one thing and then an opportunity at Goldman Sachs presented itself. But then, you know, you followed your passions when you heard about the Elian story. So share us, share a little bit about that and what influenced some of those decisions. You know, I think that it's interesting with, with our Latino culture, we're really, you know, trained and ingrained and raised to to think about taking care of our own. And I love that about our culture in so many ways, right? And I I remember briefly a point in my time where me and my mom went to go live with my aunt. And, you know, I remember kind of another time where, you know, my my grandmother had gotten ill, so she had come and moved in and, and what have you. And it's kind of like that time where like when the ro- those around you are 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 having troubles, you take them in and you you 
you know, you all support each other. And I think that's a beautiful thing. But but I think for Latinos, it bleeds into our professional life, our, our, our decisions that we make in terms of like, what are we going to do for the rest of our lives, our professions, or how we're going to make money and what have you. And I hear from a lot of young Latinos in particular, you know, like these they pick careers that have to do about giving back. And in some regards, that's very noble and it's amazing. And certainly if that is your passion, by all means, please pursue it, right? There are some folks who, that's why they become doctors. They wanna help other people that are sick, by all means. But, but I hear more often than not, especially in Washington DC, a lot of folks that wanna go do immigration law because they wanna help somebody figure out the immigration process because it was so difficult for them. Right. Again, very noble. And if you really have an immense passion, personal passion for the law and immigration, immigration law specifically, by all means do that. If that excites you, wakes you up in the morning, you see yourself in the mirror and you're like, yes, that's what I want to do, do it. But I feel like some people pick this career because it's the only thing they've known. They've had this whole personal story, whether mm -hmm. it be an immigration struggle and now they want to give back and figure that out. And they don't kind of recognize that there's all these other options available to them, but they also kind of, I think, feel a guilt about picking a career or pursuit that would be... Uh, you know, what some would call the sellout, right? Like that right. they're just going to go make some money. They're going to go work on Wall Street and 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 be a, a bank type tycoon or an executive or whatever it might be. And I I want to say like, don't, don't hold yourself back because of that illusion, because I, I don't think that's true. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we kind of look around corporate America. We look around, I'm here in Washington, D.C. I look in the policy space and like, there are not enough Latinos representing us in all the places that the, we're, we're decision-making happens where power is. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a problem, right? And because, you know, Latinos make up 18% of the population, and yet we're about one, maybe 2% of the Fortune 500 CEOs. And I just yes. think, for example, like when you talk about minimum wage, wouldn't that conversation be different if 18% of Fortune 500 CEOs were Latino, if we matched kind of our representation in the community? Yeah. I just think it would be a completely different conversation if we were part of it, and we simply are not. We're not in corporate boardrooms. We're not in the C-suite. We're not, I mean, we're, we're gaining numbers in Congress, but, you know, we're still, still very far behind. We have, like, I think 37 members of Congress out of 435 on the House side and, and another 100 in the Senate. Like, that's simply not enough. We have, you know, four United States senators, mm -hmm. and, and we're just we need to be kind of represented. So if you, if, if, a, if a young person is particularly strong in something like Excel spreadsheets and you love numbers and you're all about that, like go get an MBA, go become an accountant, become a CFO, go, you know, if you love the law instead of immigration law, I mean, take a look, like maybe you could become the general counsel of one of these corporations and start advising them on kind of the decisions that they're making and, and, and be a different voice, a sounding board instead of kind of that circular voice that they hear themselves all agreeing with each other if it's, you know, all white male, like, you know, the, 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 which is the predominance in, in, in corporate America. And so I, I would just really kind of encourage folks to kind of look in and look at your passions. What are you good at? And are there other ways to apply that other than kind of maybe that initial draw that you learned as a kid to give back to just your community? And maybe there's other ways. And, and you know, I, I've run a, C, uh, a 
um, a nonprofit organization. I was the CEO mm-hmm. briefly for the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute. And I will tell you, I mean, the number one objective of most nonprofits, probably all nonprofits, is raising money to do the thing that is that they are created to do. Yes. And so in CHCI, we want to give away scholarships to bring kids to D.C. so that they can learn about policy. But we spend probably 80% of our time raising money and 20% of our time actually teaching those kids once they get here. Right. And so now that I have, you know, have have some some amount of success, I've run my own business, I look forward to writing my checks to all of the organizations that I want to give to, right? So my mom had multiple sclerosis. I write a check to MS Society. I care about Latinos and kind of our next generation. That's why I devote so much time and my my money to CHCI and a host of other things. Like, And all of those charities, all of those causes that I care so much about, love that I am there to help write that check and also bring my clients to the table and write checks, right? There are other ways to yes. contribute and give back once you reach a different pinnacle of success. That is such phenomenal and critical advice. And I think that our listeners, you know, you need to rewind and listen to that part again, because it is so true. When you have more, you can give more. So be strategic in leveraging your strengths and those passions and find out, you know, how can you um, get what your worth is so that you can give back more? I think that is so phenomenal in, in thinking about that. So I want to pick your brain a little bit on, you know, you have been a pioneer pioneer in terms of, you know, going and being the only in many of these places. And, you know, talk to me a little bit about how you overcame if you did have some of those fears and maybe limiting beliefs, especially at the young age of 15, going off to boarding school, and maybe being the only one who kind of looks like you and then going off to schools like Georgetown and others where representation or people that look like us really aren't there. How did you overcome those limiting beliefs? You know, I, I will tell you and kind of, you know, some some deep kind of uh, thinking on my on myself, like I, I have to admit, I'm very, very open and honest, you know, Christina Antello, like it doesn't come across, there's no Z's or X's. So nobody kind of immediately thinks like, oh, she's Hispanic, she's Latino. Mm-hmm. And I gotta say, sometimes I feel like I'm the wolf in sheep's clothing, right? Like I, I blend in more easily and, and, and people don't necessarily notice. A lot of times they just think I'm Italian. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I acknowledge in some ways that my struggle maybe isn't as difficult as, as somebody else. Maybe if I were native born somewhere else and I still had a thick accent or if I had a name that very clearly portrayed that I, I was different and other or if I was a great deal darker than I am I mean, have olive skin but I don't you know I don't come across as very dark mm-hmm. and so you know I, I can see that I know that about kind of how people have accepted me and and maybe that is easier so I, I, I take you know take what I what yeah. I'm about to say then with with the grain of salt um, but I am very cognizant that I am Cuban right? Like mm-hmm. I grew up with Celia Cruz. I grew up with adobo everywhere, you know, in our foods and eating flan for dessert, like all of those mm-hmm. things. I'm very conscious of my culture and I'm very, I'm proud of it. I love it. I make it part of who I am. I don't hide it in any way. And it, it is out there. Um, and, and I do, and I, I bring it up proactively in, in different, you know, um, in different ways. You know, when, when I got to, to, to Brooks at 15, you're right. That was probably the first place where I had to figure that, that out for myself. I showed up like punky Brewster. Maybe that was more Texan <laughs> culture versus Latino culture. I'm not sure, but I had, you know, the big bangs and I wore bright colors and I showed up in a Northeast prep school and everybody there, like their, their idea of color was like Navy and Hunter green. And I, <laughs> and I, I stuck out like a sore thumb, a sore thumb. And I, I think I started to just be like, you know, there's, there is a way to 
assimilate without losing yourself. Like you Mm -hmm. don't have to lose yourself to be able to blend in. And that is a fine line to walk. You have to do it to some extent, you know, and that's part of the game. Like, you know, do I wish we didn't have to, you know, if if we're talking about like how we wish life and society were, do we wish we didn't have to put pieces of ourselves away in certain places? Sure. And if we were aspiring for that and what kind of, you know, a perfect world would look like, sure, that would be, that would be on the list, but that's just not where we are. And I'm here more to talk about practicality and you wanted to know how I got to where I am. Mm -hmm. You have to blend in to some extent, right? It makes the other people more comfortable in accepting you and they're then more open to hear your thinking, your ideas, your, your concerns and addressing them. If you have made the, the effort to meet them halfway, then they will be more likely to meet you halfway. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I, I dress more like the kids now at Brooks than I did when I was in Texas, right? I, I do wear, you know, the black and the navy and, and, and the grays and stuff like that, but I still have my pop of color. I've always got on bright <laughs> you know, cute shoes with big stiletto heels. Like that's the Latina in me. That's like, I'm not giving up the shoes guys. Like I'm going to wear that. And, you know, I still wear jewelry cause I, I like that. And it's usually big gold jewelry. Cause that's kind of, you know, my JLo-ness or whatever that yeah. is, like that part of the, the culture. So there's still that. And I, so it's a mix, right? It, it is a mix. Like I, 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 it is easier for people to accept me in, in, in that way. Um, you know, and, and there have been some moments where, you know, there is the very clear, the other. I remember sitting in an interview. I mean, it was as, as if it was out of central casting, like out of a movie. I mean, a, a white guy with his puppy gray hair sitting in his like leather armchair, looking at my resume and I'm sitting, you know, like I'm on the couch across the room and he's like, what is this ABC? And like, well, it's for diverse students. Well, certainly you aren't going to convince me that you're a minority. And I'm like, there must be a way to interpret that so that I'm not offended. <laughs> I don't know what that is in this moment, but let me pretend as if I know what that is. I'll come to it later uh-huh. and I'll answer your question. I'm like, well, actually, yes, sir. I'm Cuban and you know, blah, blah, blah. Oh, well, you've assimilated well. And I'm like, again, there must be a way to interpret that so that I'm not offended right now, but I don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. And I had to be like, I guess my blonde highlights are like, you know, make me look white enough to work at your law firm. Well, good. Mm-hmm. I- let me trick you. I'll get in the door and then you watch what happens, sir. Like that's, that was kind of my mentality. And that, that's kind of been where, where I was the same, even going to Brooks. I mean, I went to Brooks on a full scholarship and I have no qualms about the fact that they needed help diversifying. They found a really smart Latina that could come handle their rigorous schedule. And I was like, you guys use me for your diversity number. I'm okay with that. Cause I'm going to use you for the best education I can possibly get. Yes. And yes. so it's a mutually beneficial symbiotic thing. And I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, fast forward 20 years, I'm on the board of the Brooks School because I appreciate that that was the most significant educational opportunity of my life. Yes. And I hope that I can give that to other people as well. And they need to have kind of a Latino voice to help re- remind them of that, even in this day and age. I think that is such phenomenal advice in the fact that, you know, and what you touched on in terms of we do need to assimilate in some way. And I like to call it acculturate, right? You acculturate and we actually have an advantage because we already start off as being bicultural. You know, you are Cuban American, I'm Mexican American. We basically, you know, know that there's a different culture. We have our own culture. We're living in a different culture. And so I always tell, you know, my, my clients and my mentees and others that any organization you go into, like when I went to Goldman, realizing that they have their own culture. So I've got to learn how to be bi-culture and, you know, when in Rome, do as Romans do, right? What, do, what does success look like at Goldman Sachs? You've got to do the same thing. 
it's not selling out. You're just being bicultural. So I love what you said in the sense of, you know, taking advantage of what they have to offer you. And like you said, it is a symbiotic and kind of like a, it's a reciprocal kind of, you know, we're, they're giving you the opportunity to learn and expand your frame of reference. And at the same time, you're going to leverage all of that to go, you know, do bigger and better things. And I think that is fantastic. And I think more people need to hear that because there is that hesitation of, oh, I'm going to sell out or, oh, I'm going to, you know, um, you know, I'm going to adopt the, you know, bad habits of, you know, the, the, you know, big brother or whatever that might be. But I think, you know, we need to shift that mindset and shift the story that we're telling ourselves and leverage those opportunities. Can you share a little bit about, and, and, you know, this is what you do for a living, right? In terms of like lobbying and thinking about just um, the, the, the brand and the kind of reputation that you have in getting things done, like how important is that, you know, how key is it to building and being able to tell your story and getting things done? You know, everybody kind of picks their own, their own way and everybody's got a different strength and everybody, you know, needs to do what is comfortable in in their own skin. I, you know, I remember kind of watching my, my grandmother, my grandmother came from Cuba to this country. She never learned how to speak English for whatever reason. Um, but you know, back in Cuba, I mean, she was well accomplished and she was a professor and she, I mean, was, was a super smart lady. And then she comes here and because she doesn't speak English, like none of her accolades follow her, none of her education Mm -hmm. matters. And so she starts at a bank at a very low level and she works there for the next 30 years at a very low level, just because of the language barrier. Right. Mm -hmm. But here is this very, accomplished, really super intelligent woman doing very small and menial things. And, but it was the work. I mean, she got up every morning so early to go work so hard and stayed late. And then, you know, like, and then at home worked very hard and took care of all of us. And it was like, I saw in her this work ethic that no matter, no matter what the circumstance was around her, she was Mm -hmm. going to accomplish her ultimate goal of making sure she was providing something better for her family. And that was important to her. That was worthwhile. That was, it didn't matter what the menial tasks were at the bank. Mm -hmm. It only mattered that she was accomplishing her ultimate goal. And I, and I think about that, like that is tremendous inspiration for me Mm -hmm. because I know now, like I, I feel like I'm smart. I feel like I know a lot of stuff and I feel like if people kind of wrote me off and made me do like very, menial things kind of below my level. I don't know how I, how I would sit with that. And certainly not for 30 years. Like I wouldn't be happy with that at all. And she, she did it anyway. Mm -hmm. And I, and that is tremendous, like, um, passion for me to kind of go forward and and do my, like, well, she did all that for me. I better do something with it. Right. Like I better take advantage of it. Um, but you know, so I took that work ethic and I thought about it and, you know, I, another thing my dad said to me kind of, you know, and it's kind of like death and taxes. He's like, you know, you're not guaranteed anything, Christina, you only have the time that you're here and that's it. So make the most of it. And like, you know, it's to the point now where like, I can't sit and watch a movie for two hours because I feel like I'm wasting two hours. Like I can have it in the background, but I need to be doing something. Like I need to constantly be producing or, or accomplishing. Accomplishing mm-hmm. is the word. And so I, I took that to heart. And, you know, I, I remember, and you, you know, you alluded to it, I think earlier in the imposter syndrome and what have you. And a lot yeah. of us don't feel like we're worthy or what have you. And so there's a piece of me that always kind of feels like, well, I may not be the smartest person in this room or any room but I know I can outwork anybody. Like I know that. 
And so even if I don't know already walking into it, XYZ policy, right? Like I don't know healthcare policy inside and out. I don't know what 302Bs are or like Medicare Part D. I don't know all of that stuff off the top of my head. But if I get any one client that cares about any one of those things, I will study it overnight. I will be an expert by tomorrow and let's let's charge forward. Mm. And And I know that now, and I think kind of getting that liberal arts education along the way teaches you that you can teach yourself anything. Mm, And so it doesn't matter what you know today, right now in this moment, but if you tell me I need to know something by tomorrow, I will know it. I will teach it to myself tonight. And then within the next week, I'll be an expert. And within the next six months, it'll be as if it were like a second language to me and I will just know it inherently. And I will have just developed it as my own skin. I was like, and so, but that takes work. And so you have to commit to doing that work. And so that, you know, it's kind of, you know, control what you can control. I can control myself. I can control and teach myself and like plan out my hours and go study and do all of the things that I need to do to be able to accomplish that goal. And that is, that is what I I like to focus on control what I can control. And that is only myself Mm -hmm. and my time. And I can dedicate and spend my time bettering myself, learning more or, or becoming more accomplished in whatever it is I need to try to accomplish. What if you could pinpoint the invisible ceilings limiting your success? Imagine having clarity on your strengths and barriers so you can take action and gain unstoppable momentum to advance as a future ready leader. Well, that's exactly what the Beyond Barriers quiz will help you discover. You'll get your personalized score based on the 25 essential elements proven to accelerate success in the digital age, so you can understand what's holding you back and where to focus your efforts. The Beyond Barriers quiz is completely free and takes just a few minutes. Go to imbeyondbarriers.com slash quiz and take the quiz today. Mm. And can you, let's dig into a little bit about that because it is some of those daily habits and the rituals that you practice that really have um, really influenced your career success. So what are, what is, you know, one of the, you know, things that, you know, Christina does daily that really helps propel you forward? Um, You know, I think, I mean, professionally, one of the things that I do that I think helps is, you know, I read every day and I, you know, for my politics is constantly changing. So you got to stay up with it all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, I first started doing like TV hits that I would get really nervous and I felt like I needed to study, right? I went to that kind of safe place where I'll go study for my TV hit. They've told me that today's topic is this and I'll go study that. And I would spend five hours studying that topic to then like a news item would hit and we wouldn't talk about that topic. And instead we were talking about the topic of the day and I'd have to do it on the fly. And what I realized when that happened enough times was like, wait a second, because of my daily reading, I already know enough to be able to handle whatever they throw at me in any one of these situations. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of having that confidence though, but it's like being, but like staying on top of things, doing that reading every day. Mm -hmm. And again, that's my profession. Every profession might be different and kind of what's required to kind of stay in the know. But you know, like, but so I, I get something out of that and it, and it also makes me feel smart in front of my clients that I know the latest and greatest or that I can keep track of like all of the different senators or who did introduce what bill. Um, so that's, that's one thing. You know, I think another thing is that I, I have two little girls and I love them to pieces. Um, but I have tremendous mom guilt now that I'm an, an old lady, right? I'm not like my, <laughs> at the beginning of my career here. Uh, but you know, I have that, that mom guilt, like, Oh, do I spend this next hour? Do I go home on time and make, 
dinner or do I spend this next hour doing this for my client or, or whatever it is to make sure it gets out the door today. And so I constantly have that mom guilt. But so I, I've come to a space now where like I have given myself permission to pursue what I want to pursue because I'm a good example for them. That's what I want to be for them. Um, but I also make it up in other ways. And I think back on my own childhood and I think back, well, there are these moments, these crystal moments in my childhood that were like impactful. And it wasn't necessarily the day to day. Like what did I do every day that I remember, but Mm -hmm. a big birthday party. I remember like all my family being there or something like that. And I, and I get, it makes me think back like, okay, well then I'll create big moments for my kids to remember Mm -hmm. so that in their memories and, and on a day, even on their day to day lives, they'll know mom loves them because like mom blows out my birthday. She shows me she loves, me because we do birthdays big in my house, right? And so like being able to conquer that. So for my little kids, I I have those things where I think about them in ways and I try to give them those moments so that I can also continue to pursue my career without this, this crushing guilt. Like I have a little guilt every day, but like, that's okay. But I don't have crushing guilt that I'm not allowed to pursue that. Yeah. And I think that's so important because like you said, you're, what you're doing is you are creating that integration, that work-life integration that you are being strategic and what's going to be memorable for them. Um, but then it allows you that freedom to be able to pursue what you want to pursue. I think that is fantastic. So in your line of work, um, making difficult decisions probably is something that you deal with multiple times a day. Tell us some techniques that help you when making a difficult decision and taking risks, because we all know that decisions are hard because when you decide, you divide, right? So how do you go about making those types of decisions? You know, it's so funny. I'm going to tell you a little story and then kind of relate it back. So I, I remember once I'm the junior attorney at my law firm and I have the senior partner with me. We go to a, a client's building for, for a meeting. Mm-hmm. And this is a massive building. We go up for the meeting, we come down. And when we come down in the elevator, it's just a massive elevator bank. I mean, there's probably, you know, 15 elevators that way, 15 elevators that way. And it's just like, but no indication of anything. And I just immediately turn right and we start walking and we get all the way down to the end of the hallway to figure out we had made the wrong turn and instead we were supposed to go left. So then we start going back. And he looks at me like, why did I follow you? You had no idea where you were going. Why did I, like, why did I do that? And I was like, well, we have more information now than we did when we got out of that elevator. So now we know we're going in the right direction. We could have sat there twiddling our thumbs, like hand wringing and been really nervous and scared. Like, do we go left? Do we go right? Do we go left? Do we go right? And not ever make a decision. But at least if I went right, even if it was the wrong decision, I had more information to learn from to be able to eventually go left and exit the building. Mm. And it's a simple, stupid example, but it's, exa- but it's how I think about everything. I mean, the mm. fact that I instinctively just turned right and went. Uh-huh. Was I mean, it, it tells you exactly my, my thought process. Like, I'm okay making mistakes. I'm okay with it because I will always get more information out of that than if I had just sat around being scared. And I feel like there have been a few times in my life where, like, I missed out on something because I couldn't be decisive. And that feels way suckier than making a wrong decision. Yes. And I just don't want to feel like I missed out because I was scared. Like, ah, like who, like, I don't want to live with that. Mm-hmm. I'd rather live with a wrong decision and know what, well, I tried, I gave it my best shot. Yes. And then, then I didn't even participate. And so I, I, that's the way I approach most decisions. I mean, even in starting my own business now, Ferox is three years old and 
I, I did a little hand wringing on it. I actually had thought about doing it uh, a couple of years before. I thought that, you know, Hillary Clinton was going to win the White House. The Democrats were going to run this town. And like, I would be like, well, perfect timing. Let me go do it. And then Hillary Clinton didn't win the White House. And I was like, oh, never mind. I'll take a moment. Let me stop. Hold on. Um, and I and I, you know, I was scared. I was like, oh, I can't be a Democrat in this town. If Republicans are running everything now, I guess I better sit on it. Um, and And then I had kind of the opportunity came up again. And I almost kind of passed it up a second time. And I was like, it wasn't until this moment where I finally just gave myself permission to fail. Mm. And I was like, listen, I can survive anywhere for one year. I can do anything for one year. And I've got enough savings where like I can make the mortgage. I can feed my kids, maybe with ramen, but nonetheless, I I can survive for one year. So let me give this a shot. And if in one year, this doesn't work. That's fine. I can then go work for another firm. I had been at a firm making somebody a lot of money and I can go to another firm and go make somebody else a lot of money. But for one year, I'm going to try to make myself some money and figure this out on my own. And if it doesn't work, that's okay. Cause I can still go do that other thing. Mm-hmm. No need to do it right now. And in that moment, it was like, Oh, okay. Burden relieved. Let, let me go forth. And if it sucks, then okay. I'm back in this position where I am now. Anyway, it's the same thing. I'm, I made a right turn. And if it was the wrong turn, I could turn back left and go back the other way and it would have been fine. And, 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 and then, you know, Ferox blossomed. I mean, we had two clients on day one, three clients on day two and, you know, eight within that first year. And now we're up to 14 or 15 and it's just, and, and good clients, right? I mean, like mm-hmm. Disney and waste management and Diageo and like all of these like national names that you've heard of, like not yes. clients, like they're, they're cool and they're cool issues. And, and they like, and they come back every year and they resign, right? So like, that's the good sign. Like I'm doing it right. And so decision-making for me now, it's like a sport. I'm like, let's go ahead. Give me a decision. Let's do it. What do you got? Cause I, I'm not scared of them anymore. <laughs> I love that. And I love the fact of giving yourself permission to fail. And to be quite honest, it's those failures and those obstacles that become the opportunity. And so we just have to kind of be okay with it and just, you know, who cares what others think, right? Just go do it. And like you said, you have more information. You're like, okay, I know that, you know, it's just like, okay, there's 10 solutions. Now I know that, you know, that's not one of them. (laughs) They have nine more options. So let's go and get that done. So the other thing that a lot of our women struggle with is um, access to influential leaders and building a strong community around them. Um, And given your line of work, I mean, you really do have to leverage and nurture relationships in order to get things done. How do you gain access to influential leaders? How do you go out there and kind of build your, you know, relationships and your network? You know, it's funny in, in my business, my business feels like it's all relationship uh, and relationship building. And, you know, kind of over the years, I've, you know, met a ton of different people and I see different styles and, and, and all of that. And what works for me and what I think is, is works best for most people actually is when you build an authentic relationship Mm -hmm. and like you see some, you know, young people will go to an event, a networking event and just go there with their cards and hand out, you know, 30 cards. I'm like, I had a successful night because I handed out 30 cards and they're like keeping a tally. And I'm like, well, if you didn't actually make any connections with people, if you don't actually know anybody by the end of the night, if there's, you know, not a way that you can go back to any one of those folks to, to have like a real conversation, I, I don't know that that was actually that successful. So I, I wouldn't view that as, as a successful night. Yes. For me, like, I, you know, you may not be able to tell now I've been training, you know, training myself over the last decade or so, but I used to hate 
kind of going to that kind of a, a room full of strangers and having to introduce myself and, and figure out how to carry on a conversation. I hated it. Like it was a chore and I, I d- despised it. And I, you know, I got better at it as I practice and, and what have you, but I would, so I would, I would make a deal with my, like meet one person, have one good conversation and you can leave. You're done for the night, Christina. Uh-huh. And, and that would be it. And so, and I found that I, you know, I would make one good conversation, one authentic connection with somebody. And that ended up working out better for me. Cause if I did that four nights a week, well, then I let I, every week I had four new authentic, good contacts, not mm-hmm. four events where I dropped off 30, you know, business cards and kind of kept going. Um, you know, and then in that relationship, I think, you know, a lot of people, especially as you're career building, or maybe you're like trying to like, oh, I need to start figuring out how to get clients. And you're just thinking about like, how do I get clients or, or something like that? Mm-hmm. And then you start to view and, and, and treat relationships transactionally. And that's the kiss of death. Because as soon as somebody feels like they're yeah. a transaction, they don't want to participate. And they're like, ah, I, you know, nothing, nothing here for me. I'm good. As opposed to, again, developing, you know, a, an authentic, good relationship. I, I think I also kind of along the way started to develop a longer time horizon view on things. And especially, I, I think because I had the comparison of a Wall Street career versus my, you know, my, my career in politics. Mm-hmm. And in, in Wall Street and in a law firm too, by, by, by that account, you know, there's, there's, there's this progression that you go through, right? You're supposed to come be an analyst for four or five years. And if you're good, we'll promote you to associate. And if you're, you know, you do that for four or five years. And if you're good, then maybe we'll promote you to a VP and you do that for eight years. And if you're good, then maybe we'll, you know, like there's this this ladder you have to climb and there's like these time checks and, and only if you're good enough, do you get to go to the next level in politics? It's not true. Like you can be carrying a candidate's luggage and if they win that, that election, then you could be their, you know, legislative director, which is like the second highest thing in their office. Right. Or you can be, you know, the same thing. Like there was a body guy that worked for Obama that then, you know, after the election, he goes to work in the White House. You go from being a body guy to working in the White House and being an advisor. And now he's like on a corporate board. Mm-hmm. Like that blows my mind. And only in DC and only in politics does that happen. Right. But nonetheless, like, so it just made me realize, like, don't worry about what any one person can do for you today, right now in this moment. That's not what it is. It's better if you and I build a relationship, keep track of each other. And if generally speaking, you and I are good, smart, hardworking people, we're both going to progress. And like chances are you are going to end up somewhere in life and I'm going to end up somewhere in life where we can probably be mutual beneficial to each other in various ways that you and I can't even fathom today right now in this moment. Right. Right. And it's just like, so just make as many of those good connections as you can and make and make friends. And and that's the other thing, right? You get this support system that comes along with it as the extra added bonus. Yes. And, and, And then and then you have your support system who's invested in you. Who's like, I want to see you do well. I want to celebrate you. And now you're up for a promotion. I'm going to go tell everybody who's interviewing you that I think you're awesome. Or I'm going to keep an eye out and be like, oh my God, I saw the perfect job for you. Here it is. Or, hey, you know what? Like I, I, you know, you're working on funding XYZ. I've got three clients that might want to fund the endeavor that you're going to take on. Mm. And so that is, that is, it is better again to kind of build real relationships that you invest, but that, I mean, the flip side of that is you have to invest in them too. Yes. You have to want to celebrate them too. And then they feel like, oh, wow, like Christina invested in me. Like I want to invest in her. And that, that just pays off later in spades. And again, the extra added bonus of of a support system. Uh, That's such sage advice. And, you know, again, I truly do believe um, like you, it's quality over quantity. And um, I think, you know, this, 
individuals sometimes get tied up in the whole numbers, right, of my network. I mean, if you look at people's, you know, Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn, you know, they're after the numbers and it's like, oh, I have 20,000 followers. And I'm like, yeah, but how many of those do you actually know? You know, those are like quality relationships. So I do agree with you, quality over quantity. So um, in final question, you know, thinking about our, our listeners, what advice would you want to leave them with in, turn of, in terms of, you know, helping them continue accelerate their success, um, especially in this, you know, constantly evolving environment and, you know, just disruption of technology, AI, and just, you know, politics itself. What is your, what is your advice? You know, I think for, for me, it's been, you know, about following my passion, right? So I, I went to Georgetown kind of on following my passion of government and politics. I took a side road at Goldman Sachs doing finance, which I am totally happy with and, and content with in, in my decisions. But then it was the Elian Gonzalez story that reminded me that I wanted to do politics and policy. And when I got here, kind of fell in love all over again with, with a whole new profession that I had never heard of, right? Mm-hmm. So I think kind of my, my advice would be kind of two-pronged. One is to, to do the thing, you know, to follow your passion do the thing that you are happy about. I, I see a lot of folks that go to law school because they're like, oh, I'm going to go be a lawyer. And there are a lot of miserable folks sitting over in law firms, kind of just <laughs> cranking away and doing their hours and writing their yeah. contracts and writing their briefs. And, but you know, they, they seem miserable, like, and, and they don't, they don't look like they're enjoying their life. And like, I, I literally, I mean, I, I'm excited every day when I wake up and I get out of bed. I'm like, I get to go be a lobbyist again today. Like I get to go on Capitol Hill and talk and convince Senator so-and-so that my client's policy is the right way or whatever. Like I love, love what I do. And that is, I mean, like you can't put a price on that. Like, so I, I would encourage folks to kind of find that passion and, and follow what, what that passion is. But the second thing is kind of, which sounds a little different than that is, be open to new things because you don't know what you don't know, right? I mean, right. again, I, I grew up in Dallas, Texas. I had no idea. I didn't know what government and politics were. I didn't know what finance was. And then, you know, I've had these two careers where I worked on Wall Street and now I work on K Street. Like th- those things were foreign. They, they, they didn't even exist for me back in, in Cedar Hill, Texas. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, and, and I followed a path and I got here, but like I was willing to try things, you know, and, and sure when ABC first called and they said, do you want to go work on Wall Street? I was like, ah, I don't know. But they're like, well, it's 10 grand. Well, I, at least I opened up myself to it. But then once I got <laughs> yeah. there, I was like, holy cow, like this is a whole new world. This is fun. This is sexy. It is, it is changed my whole life, right? I mean, to be mm-hmm. 22 years old and working at Goldman Sachs, learning about equity and debt markets and, and financial markets and how the economy works, it now changed like the way I view the whole rest of the world. Now, when a client comes in, I don't just immediately think policy. I think like, huh, they run a business. They care about this in the market. They trade, they, their stock goes up and down, right? I'll put every one of my client's stocks into my phone and I follow it. And I'm like, why is their stock dropping 30% today? Like what just happened? And like following the news stories, it helps put me into a better mindset to understand where they're coming from and what they're going to need. I wouldn't have that perspective if I hadn't been open to working on Wall Street. Same thing with law school. Like I, I don't actually use my law degree on a daily basis. I don't sit around and write contracts and like go to court or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But law school more than anything teaches you to think about life and and problems in different ways. They think about like risk and how do you mitigate risk? How can you mitigate around it? Mm. And so now, like, I mean, you know, for better or for worse, every time a situation presents itself, I'm like, what are the risks and how can I minimize them? Like, what do I do? Mm -hmm. Like, are there ways for me to to write something around this or protect against it Um, or or expose something that's gone wrong? Right. And so like law law school really changed how, how I think about that as well. And so like, 
I don't know that I was necessarily looking to go to law school when I was, you know, younger as well. And so, but being open to that, because you don't know what you're, what you don't know, again, like you might have like this love of, I actually, I do love spreadsheets. I love that, that Goldman talk. <laughs> I love Excel. Like I love it. It makes such a great tool and it makes so much logical sense to me to somebody who doesn't like reading and, and prose and what have you like, like math and logic makes sense to me. So like Excel does. And it's like, if that does, I mean, that says something about your brain and kind of like how you think about the world and like, yes. then that translates into a different skill set to kind of give into to what your profession might be and so like be open to that like you you be open to trying new things um and then maybe you'll find a new passion that is the passion that you follow or something that builds on fashions that you follow to make them even stronger and so it's it's, it's kind of you know follow something that that you love and is inside yourself but be open to trying the, the new things that is fantastic. And Christina, thank you again so much for uh, gracious, uh, gracing us with your time. I mean, I think that, you know, our listeners are going to be um, really left wanting more, wanting to hear more or, or following you and learning more about you. So what is the best way for our audience to follow you, connect with you and stay on top of what you're doing? Sure. I, you know, I'm, I'm not a millennial, but I do have like the Instagram and the Twitter and I have a uh, LinkedIn. So LinkedIn professionally is probably the best way to, to track me down there. Uh-huh. Uh, I think I've even figured out how to do it to just where it's LinkedIn at Christina Antello. So you can, you can find me pretty, pretty uh, quickly there. We also have a website for Ferox strategies. Um, and there's the, the info line and the phone number there. So you can track me down at, at ferroxstrategies.com. Fantastic. Again, thank you so much for giving us the time and sharing your story. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Barriers podcast. There are thousands of podcasts out there, and we are so grateful that you've chosen to listen to ours. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and tell a friend about it and subscribe to get new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Visit IamBeyondBarriers.com where you'll find show notes, links, and the best way to connect with our guests. See you next episode.